0: I want to thank every pastor, every leader who's here, uh, whatever church you're leading. We pray that God blesses you in the work of the ministry. Um, It's not an easy um, calling, but we just pray that God gives you more grace, uh, more love, more success, more growth, uh, more wisdom, more um, leadership, more loyalty, um, in everything that you're working on. May God bless you. Amen. And then also traveling with uh, some pastors in training from our church. Um, who are also on the journey of um, expository preaching. And uh, they're doing a fantastic job. Um, I started preaching in the year 2002. Um, That's 21 years ago. And uh, it takes time. And um, I've sat through some of the greatest ministers um, in of all time. Um, I've sat under uh, Bishop to the Bismarck. He was actually uh, my spiritual father. Um, I've sat under Bishop Noah Jones on several occasions and some mentoring sessions, sat under uh, Bishop Jakes, um, Creflo, um, Dr. Ayanna Locke, Bishop Wagner. Um, We've really been blessed by great ministries and it's been an incredible journey in the world of preaching and uh, preaching is just such a blessing. It's something... Uh, as, a, as a new generation, we have to carry the great work that our fathers um, have done. And it is my joy today to give us some keys in order for us to continue in this new generation. Amen. Amen. So um, our first session today is just going to be on uh, theory. And we're first of all going to define where we are. And then in section two, we're going to define where we we need to go. And then in section three, uh, we're going to define how to get there. Now, the first uh, uh, tip I'm going to give you is one of the keys of of sermon preaching as well is progression. In expository preaching, one of the things you always have to put in the room is a sense of progression. So it's very important to always um give people pointers as you're preaching sometimes you can give a list like we're starting off number one we're dealing with abraham number two isaac number three um jacob and then when you're done with abraham say number two and now with um isaac it's always important um to give people a sense of progression so um we're going to start off with some theory then we're going to go through some practical and then we'll give you just uh, a practical key how to preach the psalm so we're going to start off with our first session which is on theory where are we where we need to go and um how we need to get there all right where are we um okay the first thing i want to integrate to you is um in my first year of varsity um we had an economic an incredible economics lecturer and um the first lesson she taught us was a, a lesson called um opportunity cost Um, Fernando defines opportunity cost as the potential benefits that an individual, investor, or business misses out on when choosing one alternative over another, simply because every opportunity we pursue comes at the expense or the cost of another opportunity. For example, if I was working full-time at MTN as a Python programmer, um, earning a salary of 50,000 rand per month, Uh, maximizing that MTN opportunity would be at the cost of me being in full-time ministry. So if I go into full-time ministry, it's going to be at the cost of enjoying the MTN opportunity because every opportunity has a cost. The most valuable resource in a preacher's life is time. Your time. And we have to be very careful and selective with the opportunities we pursue and get involved in. Because if we lose our time for prayer and with the Word, we are not going to be effective as preachers. And as a preacher, there's going to be so many opportunities. There's a a possibility of being so busy doing everything that you don't get time to pray and stay in the Word. I follow a lot of preachers on social media and there's some I can see this person is so busy doing everything else what time do they get to get in the word what time do they get to pray and when you listen on Sunday you can hear that they were playing all week now they are playing on the pulpit when you don't have time um, to be in the word you're going to be a comedian on a Sunday so it's very important that um, particularly for number one Expository preaching, the first shift it's going to bring to your life is it's going to place a demand on your time. Expository preaching requires a huge time demand. It is impossible to be effective as an expositor without exhaustive time spent in study and prayer. The journey from text to pulpit is a long journey spent with many hours in prayer, study and preparation. You're either praying, you're either studying, you're either writing, you're either editing, you're either reciting. You're either, even after you present, you're reviewing. What was that that happened just now? And uh, your time schedule is going to change after today. You feel a huge demand um, on your life in terms of time. And you start to realize that you can't do everything. You can't watch every Champions League game. You can't. You can't watch every EPL game. You can't watch La Liga. La Liga starts at ten. You've watched Sheffield Wednesday, Nottingham. I'm watching Nottingham. You can't watch every game. You see that your time is very precious. Are you hearing me here? And then number two, the second shift which um, expository preaching does is expository preaching brings a certain uh, humility to your life. In other words, expository preacher will humble you in terms of your Bible knowledge. You start off thinking you know the word. I've been preaching for years. But when I started this journey, I started to feel like I know little to nothing. Every week I'll be very honest with you when I open the Bible every week, I start off feeling inadequate. And it takes days. There's, even sometimes there's crises in your preparation where you can feel like, I'm not called for this. This is too much. Because every time you open the Bible, every week, you're not coming in with all your baggage of every sermon you've preached. You're approaching each scripture independently. And when you're looking at it, you can now skip and say, I'm not gonna preach this. This is too hard. Yeah. For fun, in February, uh, we preached the book of Revelation. It was a very fun experience. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of beasts, seals, trumpets, vials. Are you hearing me here? The millennium reign, the judgment seat, the prophetess Jezebel, the seven churches, It was a fun experience. But every week you start off in hell. But it's very humbling because (laughs) as time goes, God begins to show up in your study. And you start to learn to depend on Him and not all your studies, all your qualifications. It forces you now to depend on Him and the Holy Spirit. So every week you're going to feel overwhelmed. And at the end of the day, you're also going to feel on how overwhelmed God is. And you're also going to realize that I've actually only scratched the surface of who this God is. Of what Jesus did on the cross. I haven't fully comprehended it. In fact, you're always going to, you're going to come to a place where you feel like you're a new believer. I thought I knew the Bible. I thought I knew salvation. The more you get into expository preaching, it's going to always humble you. Number three is what I call the vice grip. When you enter the world of expository preaching, you don't know that you've entered a divine trap. Once you enter into this world, it grips your life. It holds you in a vice grip and takes hold of you. And you can't go back to anything else. Once you step into this trap, um, you've entered a trap this morning. And once you enter in, it's very hard to step out and go back to anything else. Number four, it comes with an appetite change. It changes even your your listening appetite to what you listen to in terms of the word. Changes. It changes your appetite of what you preach. It changes what you crave. You start to crave expository sermons mostly. And you'll find yourself listening to unknown professors. Unknown preachers in dark rooms with the only camera being a phone that's shaking But the exposition that's coming from that phone Is what you're now you're no more moved by all the lights and all the music all the smoke machines All the fashion you're not moved by those things anymore You now just want the word and you don't care if it's a professor in Ireland in a small little church if they are preaching an expository message that's blessing you, you're going to listen to it. You don't care if it's a pastor in Zambia, you're going to listen to him and grow. That's the power of expository preaching, changes your appetite from the superficial to you now just want the gospel. Oh my goodness. A lot of people are going to churches for the superficial and not the gospel. The Gospel is powerful enough. It doesn't need a light. It doesn't need uh, pyrotechnics. It doesn't need special effects. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's powerful. We just have to bring it out. It doesn't need a style. It doesn't need an organ to help it. It doesn't need a deep voice, a loud voice. If the Gospel is going forth, it's going to transform lives and that comes to number five the other shift expository preaching does it lifts the performance pressure off you another major side effect is sometimes as preachers we rate our sermon based on crowd response Were people saying amen when people clapping when people shouting and if I'm not getting shouts if I'm not getting a crowd response I can go home and feel like I didn't do any work so sometimes we have pressures for amens and shouts and, we, and it's for our own ego sometimes. But expository preaching is not about the shouts. You just feel it in your heart that today something meaningful happened in the hearts of the people in the room. And then I'll throw out a bonus. Another shift is it's going to change your church in terms of their devotion time. Because expository preaching has an emphasis on structure and meaning and it helps people understand what they're actually reading in the Bible when they go home have you ever been in a service where they open the book of Ephesians and you leave knowing nothing about the book of Ephesians but you know that something something great is coming your way something mighty is coming your way that's all you live with but you're anticipating the great thing that's coming but when you go into Ephesians, you don't know anything about Ephesians. Or they open Romans and you don't know anything about Romans at the end of the service. They open the book of Proverbs, you don't know anything about the book of Proverbs. Expository preaching is always going to help people study the Bible for themselves and know the book when they leave. Are you hearing me here? So where are we in preaching today? In preaching today, the best analogy I always used to describe um, where the modern-day church is today is from the world of art. Um, there are three types of painting styles. There's many, but I'll just use three. There's what is known as the realist painter. The realist painter will look at uh, Pastor Bevin and then paint a picture where it's realistic. you think it's a photograph, the way he's painted what he's seen. And then there's the impressionist. He'll paint a caricature based on what they feel, they see. So for example, if they see uh, Pastor Bevin's uh, ears and they feel like they've got great hearing, they'll draw the ears very big, they'll emphasize the ears and it will look very cartoonish. And then there's the abstract artist who on the canvas is going to see a color and say, I feel purple. And then when I see Pastor Bevin, I feel purple. Then they just throw this purple paint and they say, there's Pastor Bevin." Are you hearing me here? That's three types of preachers. When you read a text in the Bible and you're preaching a sermon, you're painting a picture based on what you read. What image are you producing? Are you producing what you read is a realistic image? Is it an impression with which exaggerates certain points? Or is it just an abstract mess? which we can't make sense of. Are you hearing me here? And a lot of preaching today is very either abstract or impressionistic, where it's an exaggeration of one aspect of the nature of God. And every time they see scripture, they're just bringing out the ears of God or the hand of God, the blessing. Every scripture, they see the blessing in everything. Even when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, they'll say, when God blesses you, you you're going to say, my God, my God. What a blessed car I have. I hear him, God's about to say, my God, my God. He's about to, you know, it's because everything they see is that impression. But expositors are realists. They bring out what they see there. If I don't see blessing here on the cross, I'm not bringing out blessing. If I don't see a curse on the cross, I'm not bringing out a curse from my God, my God. If on my God, my God, it's not talking about um, uh, wives submit to husbands, I'm not going to turn my God, my God into wives submit to husbands. Are you hearing me here? I'm going to look at what's there and bring out only what is there. So where we are today is there's a lot of um, scripture twisting, um, and a lot of it is not based on evil or wickedness. A lot of it is actually based on good intentions. Uh, We've got a lot of very good preaching, but not very God preaching. We've got a lot of scripture neglecting. Scriptures are treated like the national anthem before a Bafana Bafana soccer game. Yeah. You hear it at the start and you never hear it again. Yeah. So someone will come up, read a scripture and then they'll leave it and talk about a hundred billion other things. Yeah. And you're waiting, there, saying, OK, when are we coming back to Psalm chapter one? Yeah. Yeah. He's talking about, oh, my wife and I were playing golf, and then we went to this, then we went to Maldives, then we came back. And then, you know, others can't afford. They only go nearby. And the whole message becomes other things, not the scripture. If you read a text, preach the text. Are you hearing me here? And then there's a lot of eisegesis. Eisegesis is the opposite of exegesis. Eisegesis is a term which refers to the practice of reading one's own ideas and biases and preconceptions into the text. Rather than allowing the text to speak for itself. It's the opposite of exegesis. Exegesis is the process of interpreting a text by analyzing its meaning based on its original context, language, and historical background. So there's a lot of exegesis that happens as well. We read the Bible and we add what we want the Bible to say or what we feel the Bible should say. On that note, I'd like to let you know that the Bible does not have multiple meanings. The Bible has one meaning and multiple applications. Don't confuse your application as the meaning. Are you hearing me here? If the Bible means everything, it means nothing. It means what it means. Every parable has a specific meaning. Every proverb has has a specific meaning. Every psalm has a specific meaning. Every narrative has a specific meaning. And the narratives are the place where a lot of criminology occurs as well. Where there's a lot of uh, additions which are not there. And you have to be very careful when you're speculating what is not there. Are you hearing me here? It's unnecessary. If God wanted it there, he would have added it there. God is wiser than all of us. He knows what he has put there. It's enough. It's just right for us. And then there's a new one called uh, Narcissus which is Narcissistic esgesis where a preacher or a teacher reads themselves or the audience into the text often with the intent of promoting them as the main actor in every story in the Bible. So in every story you are the main actor. There was a, especially in Easter, somehow people become Jesus and their haters become Judas. So even when you're being betrayed, so now it's turned from being about the Gospel to being about you and your life struggles. Are you hearing me here? Now see Jesus where we are always the star. We can read Hebrews where it says Jesus is better than Moses and turn it to, you see why you are better than Moses. You've literally read, Jesus is a true and better Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. You are better than the angels. Are you hearing me here? Everything is all about you, 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 you. And that's a major problem we have. And then there's another one called, um, there's a lot of comedy preaching as well, where the whole sermon, you don't know if it's a stand-up set or not. Now, there's nothing wrong with having humor here and there, but the whole thing can be jokes the whole thing is just fun. The whole church is laughing. This is the word of God. It can't be jokes the whole way. And then there's also a very popular one in Africa, demonic horror preaching. Where it's a scary sermon. There's demons everywhere. That Liverpool logo is satanic. Those wings are the wings of Na, there's this demon called Nafayachum. They find new demons which they create. From the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they'll find them in there. So those wings, they represent the triple six. So if you were Liverpool, you are triple six. So everything is horror, horror. The entire sermon is scary. There's demons everywhere. And then there's um, also life lesson preaching where people just talk about just good good life lessons which are fantastic but they're not the gospel and then there's times there's also preaching where prophetic gifts and spiritual gifts are abused people are being made to fall all the time in very goofy ways the whole, every moment the whole service the whole service you know prophetic gifts also being abused I saw a pastor make a couple stand up and say, I can sense in the spirit that the two of you are eating the tithe. That's why you're suffering. That's abuse of the spiritual gifts. That's abuse of spiritual gifts. So, that's where we are. Let's move to where we need to go. So, preaching rests on two legs, hermeneutics and homiletics. Interpretation and proclamation. Meaning and application. Um, in the world of preaching, you've got uh, many types of preachers, but you've got two types of preachers right now. You've got preachers with bad hermeneutics, and that's the majority right now. Bad hermeneutics, but great homiletics. They have great application ideas with great illustrations, with a great eloquence and great charisma. But it's always at the expense of twisting the meaning of Scripture to say the good idea. So they can be saying something very good for you, but they're using the wrong text. They can be telling you something beneficial that can help you, but it's at the expense of Scripture. Are you hearing me here? Then you have some with great hermeneutics but poor homiletics. They interpret the Bible well, but their applications are not touching on the problems, issues... And questions that people are dealing with in life. Yeah. And that is the difficulty of preaching. How do we manage our hermeneutics and our homiletics? The meaning of scripture and the application um, to a life. So, what is expository preaching? Expository preaching, I'm going to give you various definitions. There's elements of it we can teach, but there's also elements which we can't teach. There's tangible elements and intangible elements. There's elements where the Holy Spirit has to, is going to direct you. Are you hearing me here? Yeah. So expository preaching is a style of preaching in which the main point of a Bible passage is explained and applied. That's very important. You explain the meaning and you apply it to the congregation. The goal of expository preaching is to allow the Bible to speak for itself rather than imposing what the preacher wants the Bible to say expository preaching involves you humbling yourself you might have woken up that day excited to talk about something um, about parenting but when you get back in the text there's nothing on parenting that day you humble yourself and say I'm not going to force this thing to talk about parenting there's no parenting here there's no parenting on my god my god why have you forsaken but wait a minute I could actually say like my child when they are calling me out you have to always submit yourself to what the bible is saying not forcing it to say what you want to say as a method expository preaching differs from topical preaching and textual preaching to prepare a topical sermon the preacher starts with a topic then finds a passage in the bible and i was watching a preaching masterclass and the preacher said i f- i start off with um the needs of people then I get a topic and then I go to the Bible. That's not the correct order. You start with the Word. You start with the Word. In the beginning was the Word. You don't start with the topic. You start with the Word. Are you hearing me here? Exposed the preaching starts with the Bible. Are you hearing me here? And um, so for example, for a topical approach, someone wants to talk about laziness or wants to talk about money or talk about um, demonic possession. They'll just look, for example, every scripture with demons or every scripture on laziness or every and then they're going to start going through a hundred different scriptures and not explaining each of them in their context. So what happens is all those scriptures end up being disfigured. You don't get the full picture. If I'm just going bouncing, 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 um, you're not going to get the full picture of each scripture. So in expository preaching, the preacher starts with a specific passage of scripture and seeks to understand the original content, context, the author's intended meaning, and the relevance of the text to a contemporary audience. The preacher then structures the sermon around the main point or big idea of the passage. Um, it is Haddon Robinson who uh, promotes what is known as the big idea that every sermon has to have a big idea it mustn't be a a bunch of small 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 ideas there has to be the overarching big idea which is tying everything together because you don't just to bombard people with so many things and at the end of the day they've got nothing to hold on to You've got to find the big idea of what is going on in here and then explain it through the text. So my definition of uh, expository preaching is preaching where the preacher submits to the meaning of the Bible in its ancient context and then proclaims and applies that meaning to a contemporary audience. We have to submit to the original context, and then we apply it to this new audience. Are you hearing me here? Expository preaching, I'm going to give you a few more definitions. This is uh, Haddon Robinson says. It's the communication of a biblical concept derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, and literary study of passage in the context which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and experience of the preacher, then through the preacher applies it to the hearers. I love this definition because it mentions another component of expository preaching. One of the things when you get into this, you start to notice that the study begins to conflate with devotion. Because the more you spend time just studying, it starts to transform you. You find yourself changing. I'm becoming a better husband through this. I'm becoming a better father. I'm becoming more patient. I'm understanding different struggles I deal with. Through just spending time like this. Because it transforms you. As you're studying, you start to feel a transformation. I'm sure as you're working on Ecclesiastes, it, there's something just starts to change in you. It starts to change the way you think. Yeah. As you're studying, you start to change as a person. And then you apply it to the hearers. Uh, MacArthur says, expository preaching is the communication of a biblical text derived from a historical and grammatical study of the passage, which is then communicated with an emphasis on the author's intent Making its significance timeless The intent is timeless so when Paul is dealing uh, with uh, various issues in Galatians um, In my devotion time. I'm currently working on the book of Romans just chapter by chapter just reading it from a devotional level and uh, It's changing my life again as a Christian and Just chapter 1 One of the commentaries I read were talking about um, Augustine of Hippo. He was an African uh, early church father in the early church. And this book, just reading Romans, changed his life. And brought him to Christ. And he's actually the father of expository preaching. And this book, as I'm reading it, it is changing me. Because the word of God is timeless. It can touch Augustine of Hippo hundreds of years ago, and it can touch you today in 2023. Deva says, expository preaching is the kind of preaching that draws out from a passage of scripture its author-intended meaning, then applies that meaning to the congregation. What was the author's intention when they were writing? When they were saying, in my father's house there are many mansions, were they seeing waterfall estate? Was their goal in that moment? Were they looking at the Herod's palace? No, they weren't. They were not talking about that. They were literally talking about God created, Jesus creating room for you in the presence of God. So the intention wasn't for us to sell to people that you're getting mansions in heaven. The intention was there is room for you in heaven. Are you hearing me here? What was their original intention right there? Are you hearing me here? Orford says expository preaching is a form of preaching that begins with the biblical text, continues with the biblical text, and ends with the biblical text. Amen. Amen. Expository preaching is the type of preaching when you open the Bible on a Sunday, you don't start going everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. What you've opened, you, are now, you, are, you chain yourself to that. So, if you've opened Psalms chapter 2, you stay in that place. All the horses are pulling you everywhere. They're trying to pull you to Galatians. They're trying to pull you to Romans. But you stay in there. You become a prisoner of scripture. It begins with the text, continues. You just stay relentlessly in that text, relentlessly. And you end where you started. You're not all over the show. Are you hearing me here? There's some preachers can read 50 different scriptures, and you are so confused. Which scripture were we dealing? So what were you guys preaching today? I don't know. We started here, then there, then there, then there, then there. there. We went all over the Bible in in two hours. But expository preaching, once you open Revelation, we are in Revelation. Once you open Colossians, we are in Colossians. Once you open Micah, how many have preached from Micah in here? Lift up your hand. I have. Nahum, how many have you done with Nahum? Yes, after this you need to, you see, when you're not an expositor, you, you, you stay in selected. You got your pet scriptures. And your favorite scriptures, expositive preaching forces you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. You find yourself in Obadiah. Yeah. <laughs> you find yourself in Habakkuk. Yeah. You find yourself in Ezekiel. Not just talking about dragons. Yeah. Starting from chapter 1. Are you hearing me here? You find yourself in Jude. Yeah. You find yourself in Colossians. You find yourself all over the place places you've never been to before it's always a challenge when every week the only messages are Bible stories yeah. about where Jesus and the disciples David and Goliath yeah. what else do people like Abraham taking up Isaac Bible stories Bible stories Bible stories Bible stories but you're not dealing with scriptures yeah. are you hearing me here um, <laughs> A few more definitions of uh, expository preaching. It's not a commentary presented in a pulpit. It's not a Bible commentary presented in a pulpit. It's not a lecture um, on doctrines. Expository preaching, um, though we bring out the meaning, there also has to be a spiritual application which the Holy Spirit shows you. Are you hearing me here? so it's not just simply exegesis explaining the scripture there's also applying it to the lives of people under the power of the holy spirit there's a holy spirit factor now which separates the preacher from the lecturer because the lecturer at bible school can break down the meanings of passages but the preacher now has another gift to take all these complex doctrines and complex Um, structures and complex ideas and make it edible to individuals in the house. So that's the difference then between the lecturer and the preacher. The preacher knows now how to package it in bites of information which people can understand and receive spiritually. Are you hearing me here? My next question then is, what is the center of a Sunday sermon? And I say Sunday Sermon because a lot of what is being preached on Sundays in a modern-day church is not objectively bad, it's not objectively bad, um, but it's, a lot of it is misplaced. A lot of churches, a lot of it can sound like business leadership concepts, psychology, marriage coaching, parenting coaching, life coaching in particular. One of the dominant themes in the modern day church is how to achieve your dreams, how to achieve your assignment, how to, um, how to achieve your dreams. God's going to get you to your dream. How to get rich. These are fantastic things. Or sometimes even spiritual subjects like prayer, fasting. Um, but the, the, the center of your message can't be prayer or fasting. The center can't be how to fulfill your dream. The center must always be the gospel are you hearing me here, the gospel must be the center of a Sunday sermon, of a Sunday sermon. You are under no obligation to raise up millionaires on a Sunday. You are under no obligation to raise up millionaires and billionaires. You are not a business coach. You are not Vusi Tendekwaiyo. That's not you. You are a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can set up ministries that uh, disciple millionaires and billionaires. You can set up ministries that um, disciple people who are called into that space. And you can do nice Saturday seminars or online seminars. There's nothing wrong with that. But Sunday is not the place of, this Sunday we're here to raise up millionaires. That's not what Sunday is for. Sunday is for the gospel. So the first question I want to ask is, what is the Bible about? What is the meta-narrative? What is the Bible? And I want you to ask yourself this question and research in your free time. If we are preaching from the Bible, what should dominate our Sunday sermons? What is the Bible about? The Bible is about God. It's about His power and His glory, His nature, His creation, how it fell in sin, and the unfolding of His redemptive plan for man through Jesus Christ on the cross. That is what the Bible is about. So if you're preaching from the Bible and you're not preaching about this, you are preaching about other things, not the Bible. So primarily the Bible is about God. It is not about us. The Bible is not about us. It is for us, but it's not about us. We mustn't make man the center of the Bible. Because we'll end up saying things like after we read that God created the heavens and the earth ex nihilo. We'll tell people you can create anything you want, just speak it with your words. There's no one who's spoken a car into existence immediately the way God did. You pray. You pray to God who can speak things into existence on your behalf. Are you hearing me here man is not the center of the Bible God is the center of the Bible and should be the center of our sermons a preacher by the name of Simeon said preaching is always designed to exalt God and humble the sinner our Sundays seem to be exalting man and humbling God God is just there to God is just there to help you. God is just there to make you happy. God is just there to give you stuff. God is just there. God is just your genie. And we we end up having this small God who does what we want, not what he wants. Not us doing what he wants. We need big God theology. Where when we preach, they see how big God is, how great he is, how holy he is, how wise he is. How just He is. How kind He is. Are you hearing me here? He is the center of our Bible is God. And that should be the center of our gospel. Then question two becomes, what is the gospel? If we are preaching the gospel, what is it? You can line up preachers and ask them, what is the gospel? And they'll tell you a hundred billion things. What is the gospel we're meant to preach? What is the gospel which had Paul upset in Galatians? And he says, they are preaching another gospel. What is the gospel they were preaching? And what is the gospel he was preaching? In its simplest form, the gospel is the message of salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel teaches that all human beings are sinners. So that's our starting point. All human beings are sinners. So that's the other problem we have is we view everybody uh, from a self-help lens that there's a a lion inside of you. There's there's greatness inside of you. There is sin inside of you, my friend. Yes, there's a lion of sin inside of you out to destroy you. You need God. Are you hearing me here? So the starting point is we are sinners. And that now helps us answer the question why do good thing why do bad things happen to good people who is good who is that person who can stand up and say i am sinless and i deserve nothing but good things happening to me all the time and if something bad happens to me god is wrong god is evil it's because we've told you there's a liar inside of you there's a billionaire inside of you There's an apostle inside. There is sin inside of you. So what it does is we create entitled Christians. Where we enter even prayer, I deserve this miracle. So God owes me. Whenever I'm praying, God owes me. God owes all of us here. Nothing but destruction. Are you hearing me here? God owes us nothing. But the only reason why we have to believe in God is by the sheer fact that He exists. And the fact that He exists and He made everything, it means He made us. He actually owns us. We owe Him everything. Before He even died, we owed Him everything. Now that He has died, we owe Him even more. God owes us nothing. So when we're going through pain he owes us nothing when we're going through hardship he owes us nothing when we're going through success he owes us nothing he's a good god and we are so blessed first of all that he gave us life the odds of every one of us here being alive even scientists will tell you that there are millions of possibilities against your existence today that you shouldn't even be here today. The fact that you are alive, given life is a miracle in itself. And then the fact that you are saved, that He saved you, and there's someone walking around this town going to hell, but He has pulled you out. Oh my God. What a good God we serve. What a good God we serve. And we have to make Him the center of it all. So your Christians, your church is full of sinners who fall short of God's perfect standard and are therefore in sin and worthy of separation from Him. However, God loves us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life to die on the cross for our sins, rise from the dead, and He atoned all of our sins and through faith in jesus we can now be reconciled and receive forgiveness for our sins eternal life with him and the power to live a new empowered life by the power of the holy spirit so even when we are we even when we're preaching against sin it mustn't be in a format that you need to do this you need to live right you need it's not that you need to live right you need to have faith in jesus to help you live right it's not your determin, not even your determination can make you holy. not even your discipline can make you holy it's your faith in the crucified one that you are not on your own you can't live this right life in your own strength you cannot even obey this God but he gives us the strength are you hearing me here so what is the center of your sermon is it man or God We are in an age of man-centered preaching. Everything on Sundays is all about us. You can go to church and all you're going to be taught is about how great you are, how wonderful you are. So that's why we always approach God feeling entitled, like he owes us blessings. Yet our approach should be, Lord, you owe us nothing. We owe you everything. You made us, you gave us life, and you saved us. We owe you everything. So expository preaching requires also a mind shift where the gospel is now the center of the sermon. Every Sunday, we should preach the gospel. The gospel is not just meant to be preached on Easter. In fact, every message you preach from January to Easter should be compatible with Easter service. The moment you have to say, oh, Easter is coming, now I need to preach about Jesus. You have not been preaching the gospel all year. Every Sunday service should be good enough for an Easter service or a Christmas service. Are you hearing me here? Give God praise right there. Hallelujah. (laughs) Preach the gospel all the time. Preach the gospel all there should always be a gospel tie-in in every sermon. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite, I'm not my old favorite preachers, but now I enjoy him more from a motivational and a leadership perspective. He was teaching on numbers 13. And he was talking about how the children of Israel failed to possess the promised land and you know through fear and all of that. And it was very motivational. He was talking about, you don't see the giants, see the land. You've you've been saved for a while. You've heard that message many times. But he never got to the gospel from there. It just remained in that zone of motivating you to overcome your fears. Even in that story, you've got to find the gospel. You've got to find Jesus in that space. That Jesus is not afraid of the giants. He wasn't afraid of the giants of sin and death. He was able to cross over and bring us into the promised land, which is our salvation in Christ. There must always be that gospel tie-in. So even when you're motivating and encouraging, you still have to bring out the gospel message. Are you hearing me here? Because their sin nature made them rebel against God. And they couldn't possess because as men, we couldn't, we could we can't save ourselves. We don't have the capacity to save ourselves. That's why we needed a savior to come in and help us possess our salvation. Preach the gospel all the time, no matter where you are in the Bible. Are you hearing me here? The center of our sermons must be the gospel, not demons, not business, not riches, not the law, not even morality. We must preach the gospel. Every time we preach, we must preach Jesus every time. Jesus Christ actually shows us how the whole Bible is connected. There was a great Bible teacher on TikTok talking about how to read the New Testament. And he says you don't need to read the Old Testament another great great preacher said we need to unhitch from the old testament we need to stop reading the old testament it's because you're not seeing that jesus is in the whole bible the entire bible is pointing in either two directions it's either pointing to the first coming or it's pointing to the second coming so let's just say this is the cross right so most of the old testament is pointing to here most of it. But then there's some guys like uh, Daniel who are not only pointing to the first coming but are also pointing to the second coming. Yeah. And then the Gospels are pointing right here, right here, right here. It's here. He has come, he has come, he has come, he has come, the Gospels. And then when you get to Acts, it starts to look like this. Yeah. Paul is looking like this most of the time. Romans is explaining what just happened there, what just happened there. And then you've got guys like John in Revelation. They're not really pointing there, but they're pointing to the second coming. So every time you're in the Bible, it's pointing somehow to one of the two all the time. Spurgeon said uh, very popularly, Do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road that leads to London? Whenever I get a hold of a text, I say to myself, There is a road from here to Jesus Christ. And I mean to keep on this track till I get to Him. In every book in the Old Testament, there is a road to Jesus. In every book, there is a road to Jesus. There is a road to Jesus in every book in the Bible. It's a tragedy when your sermon is a pothole on the road to Jesus. It's a tragedy when your sermon is a roadblock on the road to jesus you have blocked traffic with that amazing idea about my haters stopping me that amazing idea about how i don't need anybody but you haven't led me to jesus it is possible to preach the bible even the new testament even a story with jesus in it and not preach the gospel There are some people who are so gifted they can even open the Gospels and manage not to preach the gospel. Are you hearing me here? Like I was telling you, I heard about two sermons uh, on uh, when Jesus on Mount Olives. There were two preachers, two friends of mine who were preaching and they sent me their messages. And there's one who spent the whole time fixated on Judas uh, betraying Jesus and the whole message was. Be careful of Judas. Be careful. Be careful of people coming to betray you um, in ministry. And um, it was all about betrayal. But the other preacher, he focused on Jesus in the garden and he tied it up to Adam, and said that Jesus, Adam failed in the garden, but Jesus succeeded. And that and this was a powerful tying. He said Adam, Jesus says Adam ate the sweet fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and fail. Jesus drank the bitter cup of the wrath of God and succeeded. Are you hearing me here? What Jesus had to consume was hard and painful, but it saved many. What Adam took was sweet and so self-centered. You can you see how we brought in the gospel there? The other guy, you've got Judas is in your life. They don't want to see you succeed. Don't tell them when you start a business. Don't tell them the whole message he was in the same vicinity and he missed Jesus and found Judas. Are you hearing me here? You can be in the Gospels and not preach the Gospel. Oh my God, that is scary. Yeah, That is scary. It's even possible to talk about the cross and not preach the gospel and turn it into someone's personal comeback story. Are you hearing me here? We can even take that Easter sermon and turn it into a motivational speech about self sufficiency and success and not our insufficiency and our need for Him. What Jesus did on the cross, we couldn't do for ourselves. He had to do it for us. Are you telling me are you hearing me here? Yes. that the gospel has to be the center of the sermon? Yes. Are you hearing me here? Yes. So how do we get out of here? I'm now going to give you just a few tips of how to build um, an expository sermon. The first thing is, you've got to choose a text. That's where the first fight is. Now, on this note, you've got to learn how to get over your favorite scriptures, your favorite books. You've now got to open yourself to the entire Bible. You have to preach the whole counsel of God. So when you're setting up your preaching calendar, make sure that you're preaching a balanced diet of Old and New Testament. Different genres, historical, prophetic. Um, wisdom literature, epistle, um, apocalyptic literature. You got to make sure that you got to balance diet. So as you're planning, and the good thing with expository preaching, you can plan in advance what you're going to preach because you're not entering the Bible with preconceived ideas. So you can plan that this year, these are the books I'm going to look at. January, February, March, April. And now you enter, I'll deal with James when I get to James. I've got no preconceived idea. I've got no revelation. I've got no... When I get there, James is going to tell me what's happening there. Are you hearing me here? Choosing the right text. So make sure that you're preaching as much of the Bible as possible. Not just your pet uh, topics, your favorite themes, your favorite things even be opened to be challenged on things you've believed for years. And then when you choose a text, make sure it's a complete unit of thought. And then you've got to read it and pray over it and pray over it. Number two, the next stage is observation. Observation is simply the first thing you do when you get a a text. Um, Just pass me your Bible there. Can you open Micah? Just look for mica, it's somewhere.
1: (laughs) There we go, there we go. go. I can never stick together.
0: (laughs) Micah. So I'm 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 opening mica for a reason, because I know that no one in here has opened mica in a while. Neither have I. So I just want us to be fair. So in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, at this point in verse 2, you can't now preach a message from here. Listen, O earth. God be a witness. God shall be a witness against your enemies. You don't know the context of what's going on here. You've got to keep reading. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. So you can now start saying that God's about to destroy Table Mountain. (laughs) It's about to melt this week. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire like Waters poured down in in a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and all the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So, when you come into a text like that, your job is just to observe. Not to come with preconceived ideas. You've just come into Micah, your first job is just observation. Where you are just trying to observe what is going on here. I'm seeing the mountains melting. I'm seeing um, all this stuff. So you're just taking notes of what is going on here. What is going on here? What, who is saying this? Who is Micah? Where is he? So you're asking yourself, where is he? So you see at the top the word that came to Micah of Moresheth. So you're like, okay, who's Moresheth? Is is Moresheth a person? Is it a place? Where is it in the days of Jotham heirs and Hezekiah, kings of Judah? So you're already getting more clues. Okay, so he's ministered to us in the time of these kings. So I'm Israel Piri of the days of Tabombeki, Jacob, Zuma, Cyril Ramaphosa. (laughs) So it's showing you (laughs) The demonic leadership he was dealing with uh, kings of Judah. What he saw concerning Samaria. So he's under these kings. So your next question is, is he a prophet in Judah or is he a prophet in the north? But he's talking to Samaria, Israel in the north and Jerusalem in the south. So he's called to minister to two kingdoms. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So now when he says, hear all you peoples, is he talking to both kingdoms or is he talking to... So you start asking these questions. You're just observing. You're not getting revelation. You're just getting information. You're just investigating. As a, as a detective, you a crime. this is a crime scene. We're trying to put the, the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. What's Micah going on about? What, what are these... Uh, why are mountains being melted? Is, is this symbolic or is it literal? Is there a time that God is coming to break mountains? Or is this a symbolic of God's wrath being poured out in a specific place? When it says he's going to destroy, um, is it it using prophetic hyperbole to express the level of anger that God has for these people? And it looks like that, I don't know yet, because it could have been a prophecy where God was going to destroy a mountain, literally. Or it was just symbolic. So you you start off just by doing observation. And you're coming up with what are known as common cause facts. You come empty, and you have to always break the curse as an expositor of preconceived ideas, concepts, and sermons you have heard of a scripture. There was one scripture we were looking at in preacher's training. Deep calling unto deep. For years I've prayed it as, Lord, let my deep Call to your deep. But when we looked at it very closely, it had nothing to do with prayer. It had nothing to do with calling deep things out of God. It had everything to do with the struggle he was going through emotionally and just describing. He's very depressed and he's talking about the sound of the waves. That these deep waves, it's like they're calling unto each other and I'm drowning. I'm depressed, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of depression. So when you're saying, "God, it's my deepest calling, you're telling God, I'm depressed. <laughs> I'm depressed, Oh God. Are you hearing me here? It's a symbolic expression of depression. Yeah. And if you just took time to not come in with your preconceived ideas yeah. and just looked at what's there, you're not going to throw paint you're going to paint an accurate picture of the image of the Gospel. And it just takes time to just slow down and observe. And then number three, you start to do what is known as interpretation. After observation, you've got all the facts of what's just there. Here, just factually, he was, um, he was a, a prophet during the time of Jotham, Ayaz, Hezekiah. And that already forces you to go and read. Um, first and second kings and find out who are these guys what was happening yeah. and then you also look around which other prophets are also in this timeline because yeah. this timeline of Hezekiah, isaiah might have been alive um, jonah might have been alive so those are all facts you're just putting together and then you start to come into some hermeneutics so you got to use a few hermeneutical tools the first one is the historical critical method you want to understand the meaning of the text in its historical context. So you're looking at, so what I just said is actually that. I'm trying to figure out what, where is this place, person in time? Is it 500 BC? Is it 600 BC? So you're trying to find out historically where is Micah? And then you start to consider the culture, the language, the customs of that time when this was being written. Because that affects terms like um, high places, what, what are they talking about when they say high places? There's a historical significance of high places in their time. And um, for us, it could relate to a church building. To them, it could relate to places of worship, whether it's idol worship or places of sacrifice to God. So you've got to find out what does high places mean historically. Because when I was looking at in my father's house, there are many mansions. The word mansions historically did not mean big house. It meant a, a place with many rooms. So if you don't understand the historical meaning in context there, you will apply 2023 in 600 BC yeah. and it totally means two different things. And then number two, you have to do a literary analysis. So you begin to focus on the literally devices used in the text such as what is a metaphor what is so for us sometimes we think everything is a prophetic code and it's something we need to pray prophetically but sometimes we just need to find out is this a metaphor what is the Im- imagery what is symbolism here and then you do number three a contextual analysis where you use the immediate context of the passage as well as the broader so we begin to look at the entire passage so we look at Micah 1 the whole chapter the whole book so we understand why is he saying this in the beginning so you can never go to Micah and just take verse 3 and start to preach without reading the whole book of Micah because to understand 1 verse 1, 1 verse 3 how is it connected to the whole book of Micah We have a tendency of just taking verses one and we are so busy with other opportunities that it costs us the time to read the whole book. Never preach a verse without reading the whole book. Read the whole book. See the whole picture. How does it fit in the whole book? And then there's a grammatical analysis. You look at the grammar, the SID text. Now, these are for nerds. You look at predicates. You look at verbs. You look at participles. You look at the very, very complex um, elements of the original languages. And then there's a theological analysis. Now, this method is you're trying to find what Christian doctrine is at stake in the text. In every text, there's some type of theological issue at stake. And just looking at the face of this we can just see that one of the main theological issues is the wrath of god it's a theological doctrine so we can see god is angry at the sins of the house of israel so another theological issue can be the theology of covenant why is the what elements of the covenant have they violated for the wrath of god so now there you have to figure out the doctrine of covenant, the doctrine of the wrath of God. How does the wrath of God function in a New Testament setting as compared to an Old Testament setting? Are you hearing me here? And then number six is called a genre analysis. You consider the type of literature of the text. So this is very clearly prophetic writing. So we don't read this the same way we read the Gospels. This is prophetic. It's a prophetic writing, so there's ways to interpret uh, the prophetic books. Then there's poetry. The Psalms are different. Apocalyptic literature, this has certain apocalyptic imagery. Um, So there's a way to also look at apocalyptic literature. So you have to understand each genre. When you're reading a book in the Bible, what genre is this? And what tools are there to actually interpret this? And then number seven, you also need to learn how to do a word study. A word study. So, just looking at this, um, obviously an interesting word today was high places. What does it mean? And then I see transgression of Jacob. Sins of the house. Is there a difference between transgressions and sins? So you start to look at these words individually. In the original languages. You've got to spend time in the original languages to understand each word. Right, so that's That's seven things under interpretation. Then after interpretation, there has to be introspection. You have to start to look at yourself and say, Lord, this word, is there a point So let's just say we're getting a message on the wrath of God, right? God dealing with human sin. Then you also need to do an introspection. Lord, is there something in my life where you're this angry as well? Is there something I'm doing? Could be in my marriage could be on my job. It could be in how I parent. Is there an area? So you now also start to search yourself. That's an important part of preparing a sermon. This word, before I preach it, what change must it do in my life right now? So that when I go out there, I'm going to preach with a clear conscience. I'm not afraid to preach this because you're dealing with it in me. When you're studying, always Introspect. Don't be excited, yeah, this week, all those people who are not tithing, I'm coming for them. No. Lord, is there areas of greed in my life. I might be tithing, but I might be greedy. Are there areas of excessive spending? Am I doing enough to help the poor? Am I doing enough to help my family who are struggling? Am I doing enough to help people who have less around me? So before you go and bash the tithers also look at yourself and say is am i is is there greed in my life and then after introspection there's also intercession you've got to pray for the church before you preach to the church say lord this word that's coming lord help me father i'm not trying to offend someone i'm not trying to destroy someone i'm not trying to belittle anybody But there's some very tough especially when you especially when there's some challenging aspects in the sermon where you're going against their sin and you're challenging their flesh you got to pray lord may i may this come across in a loving and in a way that reflects your nature may it be an invitation to greater intimacy with you i'm not i'm not coming out to destroy uh those who are sleeping around i've come to destroy them today No, I'm trying to bring them back to you. Give me a way, Father, to say this message in a way that builds them up in the most holy faith, that brings them closer for you. So there's an intercession aspect as well, especially when you're going through heavy material. There's some Sundays where I'm like, some Saturdays where I'm like, Father, this is a tough part to preach. Do I have to preach this part? Give me the wisdom. I'm not trying to hurt someone. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to make someone feel small. I'm not trying to make anybody insignificant. But your word causes me to deal with this issue. I know some people who are dealing with this mess. But I've got to help them come out in a loving, in a kind, in a pastoral way. Because I'm a pastor. And I only want to bring out the best for them. Are you hearing me here? And then number six, you need to also look for uh correlations, particularly theological correlations. You start making connections theologically. Theolog- okay, how does this look from um, theology proper, from Christology, from pneumatology, from hematology? How does this look like uh, from an eschatological perspective? What are the correlations uh, from, uh, from an angiology perspective, from, from a theodicy perspective? How does this all connect? And then number seven, contextualization. You have to pray, Lord, how do I contextualize this in this modern audience? How do I talk about David, who is a king of a nation, and make it relatable to somebody who's working at McDonald's and he's not a king yeah. of a nation? Yeah. How do I connect the struggle of a king who's wealthy with the struggle of somebody who's a security guard outside? How do I contextualize these things and then number eight you have to also pray through the main application you never want your sermon to be just a hundred scattered ideas it's got to be driving to a main point everything is connected so even the scriptures you quote must all be pointing to that main application and then this is another one it's the prophetic application in the sermon So as you're preaching, the spirit of prophecy also comes in. And you've got to be able to discern that prophetically, where is the spirit also taking this thing? Because there could be something in the house which is happening in the room. You've got to be open to that prophetic application of what God is dealing with. Because the Holy Spirit can just begin to show you that someone in here is dealing with loss. Someone died and they never told you. And somehow in the message, a prophetic application to release healing and closure to their pain can come up. You've got to be open to that prophetic application. And then the 10, also there's a prophetic application in the benediction. That in the end, there's also a prophetic application as you're praying that message. You've got to prophesy it into the lives and into the futures of people. And then, like I said before, number 11, you got to locate the gospel. Preach the gospel. Every time you stand up to preach, the gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached. And then finally, number 12, you got to learn the art of building bridges and polishing. In other words, your introduction, there has to be a bridge between your introduction and your body. Your introduction just can't be this disconnected piece. Then you move disconnected and you close. Everything is disconnected. There have to be bridges. There must be smooth transitions from, from whatever it is that you open with. I like to open with a Bible talk which is leading into some type of case study which is still leading into the message. But the starting point is the message and everything else is connecting to it. So you've got to have bridges. And then finally, you've also got to polish your message. Don't bring the rough draft in the house. When it's just rough and you're figuring it out as you preach, you're studying. You're still preparing as you preach. Have you ever prepared on the pulpit? <laughs> it's just a mess. Are you here? Yeah. Polish, not everything you study needs to be preached. You've got to cut off some nice parts and make it very tight. And then you've also got to learn how to add spice to make it interesting. It doesn't need to be boring. Are you hearing me here? Got to add some spice here. So now that's the gift of English. Metaphor. Sometimes common things happening in the culture yeah. can just throw them in here and there to add interest in people's lives. Are you hearing me here? Amen. That's the first session time. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. 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 Any questions before we. My, my name is Wayne, uh, by the way, um, I was just listening to him and the stuff he's been saying. Uh, how much was this course?
2: <laughs> 200.
0: Yeah. Guys, I paid almost 18,000 rand to listen to this. I can't believe it. I'm sitting here and I said, Lord, I almost paid. I joined the um, Baptist seminary. And this is the stuff they teach you for 18k. So I just want to say thank you. Amen.
1: You're doing a great job. Yeah. Like this. Pastor Israel, thanks so much, uh, and also just thanks to Pastor Bevan of thinking about something like this. Uh, saying to some of our team that it's probably the first gathering around preaching like this that I've been to, or you know, with the team and so on. So thank you, Doc. Thank you, Pastor Israel. Here's my question. So you spoke about the different kinds of preaching. You spoke about topical, textual, um, expository, and so on. So my question is, um, there's some people in the room who might be children's church pastors, or some people who don't often get an opportunity to preach full Sunday sermons. You know, they'll preach a five-minute, seven-minute offering talk, and so on. So whatever all the principles that you've taught today or that we're learning about, is it applicable or the different styles? Are there some styles better used in different settings? For instance, a wedding, a funeral, Sunday morning. Or is expository something that can be applied whether you're doing a five-minute offering talk, children's church, class, uh, and so on. So that's that's my question, just about the different settings.
0: Thank you so much. That's a brilliant question right there. Um, the beauty of the expositor approach is it has two things it gives you. It gives you how to present and how to study. So the study aspect is applicable even if you want to do something topical or something textual. The study approach is uh, what also helps you present an offering nugget or to present to a small group, a connect group. Um, other methods like uh, topical is highly effective for things like leadership talks, things like marriage seminars, things like um, parenting. When you want to zero in on one, one specific issue and want to look at what the whole Bible um, says about it, Um, A topical approach is extremely powerful, particularly for leadership development, discipleship, um, and when you really just want to focus on a specific um, topic. But with this style, um, where it gives you power is in terms of how you study, and then you're able to pick out what you want to talk about, whether it's from a giving perspective, um, whether it's from a children's church perspective, um, it is still applicable. Now, in terms of presenting, there's over 60 different meanings to what preaching is in the New Testament. And the, the formal approach on a Sunday, um, there are certain settings where there was also informal teaching. Like when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, many times Peter and Paul, when they were talking to people in a house, in a jail or on a boat, They were preaching the word, but not in a formal setting of uh, preaching uh, a sermon on a Sunday. Um, But in terms of Sunday preaching, this is one of uh, the most effective uh, methods. And then in those other settings, you can very definitely approach topical, um, just depending on the different needs that the house has. So it's good to have It's good to have a toolbox with multiple tools so that when you see a problem it's not always a hammer Um, because sometimes even like for an offering nugget you don't need to start with everything the greek the hebrew and by the time you take the offering it's too late it's two hours (laughs) so you're able just to pull out the main points and to to share them so um, then in a children's setup for your study, you must study from an expository perspective, then pull out the principles that you want to teach the children. Thank you.
2: Hi, Posse Israel. Um, I just wanted to ask, you mentioned things like um, word study, genre analysis. Um, So obviously these are extra biblical. So what kind of material would you recommend us getting for those kind of applications?
0: Okay, Uh, you're in luck because (laughs) uh, in session two I've got a segment called How to Build uh, a Library. So I'm going to give you certain uh, books you should have um, in your library. But what I will say again is a major part of exposition is you really have to talk to your wife. (laughs) Because the investment on a library is going to cost you. And you might need to get used to wearing the same clothes all the time. <laughs> that would be your opportunity cost. <laughs> that your days of buying the latest fashion, direct it to your library. Or your days of going out all the time, direct it to your library. And, uh, but I'm definitely going to throw out how to build a library and uh, just show you which books you can get
2: uh, to build your library. But that's an important point. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Uh, Thinker, how are you? Listen, man, I I, want to comment on something and ask a question, if I may. If you look at someone like T.D. Jakes, he has stood the test of time. He preached with his peers, his his friends, and now preaching with up-and-comings. Never changed. As a preacher, I see and I find that people are trying to reinvent themselves. Uh, maybe after a season or after time, how would you advise a preacher to stick to the original plan that the Lord has given them so that you can turn out like Jake's? Because I I would like to imagine people try to become relevant, quote and unquote, uh, and forget about the original thing God called them to. That is why Jake's, as an example, remain consistent and the same. Uh, And though there's many things to preach, I may not have your gift and I don't need it and I don't want it, I should stick to what I I want to. So in your teaching or in this uh, uh, course, workbook, how would you help a preacher to stay true to who God has called them to be and not shift and change because you'll only be relevant for a current voice and not a one before and after? It's Just a question.
0: Wow, that's powerful. First and foremost, um, I'll I'll comment first on Bishop Jake's. One of Bishop Jake's greatest gifts is, God has gifted him with a natural preaching voice. His voice, he can read anything. He can read the newspaper. He can read... (laughs) He can read read the EFF manifesto, it will sound anointed. We shall take the land from the white man. You know, you can read that, and it will sound so anointed. So, one of the things is also gifting, and you you've also got a beautiful preaching voice. Um, it's a gift. Some people just have um, God just blesses them with a beautiful voice of a preacher, and you've really got that in spades. Um, so, Jake's has been blessed with that, and one of uh, Bishop Jake's strength is. He is a master of the narrative genre, storytelling. And uh, when you master that specific genre, you can have longevity. Because um, sometimes if you say this is gonna be my genre and I'm gonna stick with it, you can become such a master at it that um, it lasts through the ages. Now the beauty of expository preaching is you don't need the greatest voice. Um, You don't need the greatest style, the greatest flair. You just need the greatest thing, which is the Bible. And the Bible is timeless. And if you are able to bring out what the Bible is saying, if you are able to bring out the gospel, the gospel has stood the test of time. The gospel faced its first test. The Roman Empire tried to destroy it in its infancy. The gospel survived. The gospel went through the Middle Ages, it went through the Reformation in the 1500s. The gospel has been going for centuries and the the beauty of expository preaching is it, it no longer makes the preacher the star. And that's the challenge with the American ministry model. It is driven on the charisma of the pastor. Expository preaching is driven by the power of the gospel. You're hearing me here. So, you can train 10 people in the church, and when you sit, they mustn't feel like it's, oh, we missed our pastor. If they are getting the gospel every week on the same level you're bringing it, the only difference now is your personality, the sound of your voice. But if they're getting the same thing that you are giving them every week, which is the gospel, we stop. We st- our biggest mistake is we think God needs us. We forget the doctrine of ACT, which is God needs no, no man or nothing. God can use anybody. And what expository preaching does, it now makes the Bible the star not the preacher. And it it empowers a hearing me here? So, my longevity doesn't matter. The gospel's longevity is what matters. And if I can keep presenting the gospel, um, the gospel will have longevity, whether I do or I don't. Because I also begin to understand, what I'm also beginning to understand is, we sometimes think that, um, The gospel needs our assistance. It needs us to have this big band. We need a hundred guitars. We need so many TV screens. Oh, we don't have all those things. The gospel doesn't need that assistance. It can stand with one worship song. It can stand with one person with an acoustic. That's how powerful. That's how powerful the gospel is. That's how potent it is. It doesn't need your fashion, it doesn't need your jokes, it doesn't need your. Yeah. And God, for whatever reason, has given my African American brothers the greatest preaching voices. And those guys just read the Bible, you feel it. There was so, this other bishop who used to come to our church called Bishop Leo Lewis. Today's diamond shall be extracted from the mine of Leviticus. I will just say, turn to the book of Leviticus, you know? And the gem has 17 facets. Oh, yeah. That means 17 verses. You're like, so, it's a gift. It's a gift. But with expository preaching, you don't need all of that. Yes, just say, turn with me to the book of Leviticus 17, and we're going to see uh, the Day of Atonement, and you walk through it, and the Holy Spirit, if you bring out the Gospel, and people encounter Jesus Christ, yeah. You have preached, whether you shouted or not, whether they said Amen Amen. or not. The Gospel is powerful. Someone lied to us that we now need all these things so that the world can understand the Gospel. Can I tell you some scary news? The world hates the Gospel. Whether you put it in a Beyonce song, whether. You put it in whatever. You are not going to attract them. They hate obeying God. They hate that he said man is man, woman is woman. They hate that he says you have to get married to be sexually involved. They hate submitting to the king of kings. They hate understanding that every billion you have, Elon Musk is because of the grace of God, not your intelligence and your brilliance. At any time, you can wake up and take your life in a second. Yeah. And send you to hell with all your billions and all your Twitter and every Tesla. You'll be in hell with it. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. They want to feel I'm special. I'm a star. Yeah. I can do what I want. Yeah. I can change my gender. I can change. I can decide. Man is man and he or she, they, whatever. We are our own gods. don't to be told that you're a sinner you need to repent or else you're going to die and go to hell they don't hear that so you can put it in lights you can put it in smoke you can put it but the gospel is the gospel and if they are able to come without brokenness and be like what jesus described on the sermon on the mount blessed are the poor in spirit when they realize that i might be wealthy in terms of all these amazing things, but I'm poor in spirit. I'm a wretch. I am a wretch. I am a sinner. I'm a filthy sinner in the presence of a holy God. And I need him to save me. You can give away all the money in the world, Bill Gates. That will not take you to heaven. It's your faith in Jesus Christ, not your good works with your foundation. A Christian who has given nothing their whole life but has faith in Jesus can go into heaven. More than a Bill Gates who's given billions to the poor. Why? It's not fair. It's called grace. It's not their works. It's not their works. It's their faith in the crucified one who gets them into this. So we don't need all these things. We just need to bring out the gospel. The church is starved of the gospel of Jesus Christ right now. We've got the gospel of everything else. And the funny thing is, all those things we are, we are seeking, are actually all there. They are all there, but they are not the main thing. He will make us prosper, He will make us succeed, but that's not the main thing about Him. The main thing is that mystery of what happened on that cross, that great exchange, that atoning sacrifice, how we are now justified, how we are now sanctified, how we are now adopted, how we are being glorified, the work within us, the work within us that is working in us through sanctification, through the power of the Holy Spirit to make us live this holy life, to become like Him, to have the, to, to, be, to have that image, yes. the image of Christ formed in us, yes. the mystery where every day He's dealing with our hearts, He's dealing yeah. with our pride, our ego, our fear, our anxiety, yeah. our greed, our self-centeredness, that's the big one, our self-centeredness. Yeah. And ministry delivers you from that. Yeah. You're always doing things for everybody else. Are you hearing me here? Yeah. When I left early this morning, the people in, my, in the hotel room, my wife and kids, they were snoring. <laughs> they seemed so comfortable. But I was like, I've got a job to do. While they were sleeping, gone. Because this is the gospel. It's always about others. Pouring into others. And sometimes for nothing, for years. But God is watching you. Some of us, our rewards shall only be in heaven. And they'll be even better than anything this earth can give you. Are you hearing me here? It's the power of the gospel. So we have to trust again that this is enough. Yeah. This is enough. I was watching a beautiful worship service. Um, there's a ministry friend of mine. God has blessed him. He's got real millionaires, real US dollar millionaires in Silicon Valley in his church. And they were singing beautiful worship. And um, the lady had a beautiful voice. But her cap was just like this, it just didn't, it it wasn't looking good. The aesthetic of the worship, I honor you. And the aesthetic just wasn't looking good in terms of how she was presenting herself and presenting um, the worship experience. And we're creating this self-centered entertainment church. And we don't just come back just to stripped down and just trusting in the Lord we're here for the gospel we're here because of the gospel it's because of Jesus none of us deserve to even be here we and, and that's the only problem sometimes with the gospel of grace the way it's preached today it minimizes the law and when we say the law doesn't matter we remove an important component which is you were guilty and deserving to go to hell, so we think we deserve to, we we actually deserve to get saved. He was supposed to come. He was supposed to come. So we minimize even the sacrifice of the cross and feel we deserve. We deserve for Him to die. We are good. There's lions in all of us. There's millionaires in all of us. He was supposed to come. Do you know that if God decided not to send Jesus, he would still be justified and holy? If he decided to treat us the way he treated the angels, the angels have sinned, they're going to hell. The humans have sinned, they're going to hell. That's fine. He would still be God and he'd still be holy. But for whatever reason, he showed mercy to us. We did not deserve it. We deserved hell. So the next time you're crying about why are bad things happening to me, I'll put it to you. You deserve worse. Because there's no good thing about you. Just go through it and trust God. Only He is good. Only He is holy. And we have hope in Him that all things work together for good. So when the bad is happening, we still have hope that all things are together to good for them who love the Lord. That even though I don't understand this bad thing, it's painful, but I have faith and trust Him that it's working for some type of good
1: in my life. Amen. 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 Amen.
0: Amen. Hallelujah.